Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. friends welcome to the show this is having a blast where we discuss all things punk rock and personal development i'm your host kyle devlin on today's episode i'm extremely excited to be speaking to mr john graber otherwise known as jay graves john is a producer engineer mixing engineer a man of many hats and many talents he's worked with bands we know and love such as no effects he's currently recording their new record as a matter of fact mxpx goldfinger the suicide machines we are the union and many, many more. Located in Los Angeles, he's managing a surprising amount of output, and we talk all about that. We discuss his early days of discovering punk rock, playing in bands, and how he found his way behind the boards. We also talk about working with legendary punk rock frontmen like John Feldman, Fat Mike, and Mike Carrera. This was such a fun and enlightening conversation. I feel like we could do several of these. It was a blast to talk to John. I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, please enjoy this multifaceted conversation with Mr. John Graber. I took notes and everything. Radical man. I appreciate that. I like sending people notes ahead of time. I don't yeah. mind either way. I did one where I just had absolutely no information at all. So I brought Chris Grau, the video guy for NoFX and for We Are The Union. And I was like, you're going to interview us both because you didn't send me anything. And I don't know what you want to talk about. And like, <laughs> I don't think I'm that compelling of a, of a guy, honestly. Chris is funnier than me. So you said he does the video work for NoFX? He has. He's done every music video since I Love You More Than I, ha- I Hate Me. So everything for the new record going okay. forward. Single album. Yeah. He's actually how I got the NoFX gig. Oh, cool. So you guys knew each other before that? Yeah. So he's been, he did all the video stuff and like the visual branding for the We Are The Union record, The Ordinary Life. Oh, cool. And also for the one we did before that too, Self Care. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just one of those people. I, I mean, I met him and we just clicked immediately. We're very like different people, but we're like the same kind of weird on different sides of like the weird spectrum. When it comes <laughs> down to that, it's like, oh man, this dude's a homie. He's the best. Cool. It's always nice when you find those people that have your sense of humor. <laughs> it's like it's he's has the same sense of timing and the same sense of like irony and like mm-hmm. the things like also the same like kind of social awkwardness that like I am pretty prone to. He has the same but like in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, so like, you know, he's just a great dude. Like he's he's so talented. Aside from like making music, I did a record with him for his project Loser that is like chip based ska punk music. So like all this like like basically like ska punk music made with Nintendo sounds. 
that's rad like eight bit sounds yeah it was so rad and it was so he he had this project loser and he's like we're i'm gonna do five songs or four or five songs and i'm gonna do and i'm gonna get guests for every song and it's gonna be super cool and i was like okay what are the guests that you have in mind and he's like i'm gonna get we are the union and i was like easy get he's like i'm gonna get suburban legends i was like easy get and he's like and i'm gonna do an original reunion of the original lineup of real big fish and i was like you're not gonna do that like scott and aaron like hadn't talked to each other in years fucker made it happen really and aaron loved it he was because i mean i do a lot of work with scott kloppenstein from real big fish i did his last record and yeah i know him so i'm super close with him and aaron like i only really know him from touring and i wouldn't even say like we know each other that well but he's always been kind of like cagey and pretty strange and like in, you know, like, fuck, dude, like the guy came up in the music industry when it was just like the most abusive it could possibly be. Sure. That band got like pigeonholed pretty hard and put through the ringer. And like, so he's pretty like cagey and closed off. And for him to say like, yeah, I'll do this project and we can call it real big fish and Scott can do it with me. And wait, him and I, cause him and Scott hadn't sang on a track together for 13 years. Wow. Yeah. And fucking Chris Ground made it happen. Fucking dude is- he's a magician made it happen that's really cool i didn't realize it had been that long since scott had been in real big fish yeah he left in like 2009 2010 something like that i think the last hold on i can look it up right now i want to make sure my facts are right about real big fish for the people who love that band i don't want a fan to be screaming at your podcast being like (laughs) Scott was in the band until 2011 he left the band oh it was 2011 okay he was just on my buddy jed's podcast the talking records podcast they were doing a deep dive on an old real big fish record scott was yeah mm-hmm. yeah i just got i just talked to him like yesterday i talked to him pretty much at least like two or three times a week we're both in so i'm in recovery i've been sober for six years um and Scott's for, you, man. For, for like 20 million uh we met at i was front of ha- i was front of house for a long time for goldfinger we did a show in jersey and he was living in brooklyn at the time and he came in because Goldfinger doesn't have like a horn section that tours with us. Whatever horn sections in town, uh, I see. And who can learn the parts? They can. They just jump on and play with us because it was only like really, I think five songs in our set that has horns. Mm-hmm. So, but Scott was like, "Yeah, I'll come out and play horns." And him and I met backstage at Starland in Jersey, and they just like hit it off immediately, and just were like, "John's also uh, Feldy's also been sober for like thirty years," and so mm-hmm. like we did a meeting and all that shit, and like got down that way and just like scott texted me a couple weeks later he's like hey i'm moving back to california i can't stay in brooklyn anymore so we go when you get here let's like fucking hang out and do something like we just really just hung out for a while and then i think we wrote a weird a weird the union song with him that didn't we wrote our ordinary life the title track Mm -hmm. we wrote but like we wrote the horns with scott and if you listen to that horn part it's like such a scott like the way the melody moves is like such a Scott thing. And uh, from there, I produced uh, and mixed Average Man for him, the re-release to that. Okay, cool. It was a whole new, like the only Dan Regan and Tavis from Real Big Fish played horns on it, but there was a whole other set of horn players too. So it was some of the people we used for We Are The Union. Then the bass player was from my old band, this guy Kevin Perez, who's like a 23-year-old whiz. I hate him. He's so <laughs> he's like the one of the most soulful bass players I've ever played with. And he's like 10 years old. And then the drummer was uh, Kenny Schwartz, who's also from uh, American Splendor a band that I was in. And he's also okay. in like 311 and shit or like 311 side project, the Los Delarians. Wow. That's cool, man. So American Splendor was the band that you were in before. I was, so I did, I was in, 
I mean, I mean, we can go by the question you sent me. Absolutely, man. We can go wherever you want to go. I don't imagine we're going to run into a shortage of things to talk about. I know you're a producer and I'm familiar with your work. I'm a fan of your work and I remember reading that you started in bands, started playing in bands. Yeah, that's how I started. I was in a ska punk band in New York called the Homecoming Queens, which is a terrible fucking name. <laughs> we got, by the time we realized the name was shit, we were already like too far in and couldn't go back. <laughs> yeah, I've been there, my friend. Nah, man, Game Time's a cool fucking name. Thanks, dude. I appreciate it. Compared to the Homecoming Queens? <laughs> I actually like the Homecoming Queens. I like that name. It sounds like a Lookout Records punk band to me. It was kind of like our vibe. Like we were like very much like we would have fit in. We were like Lookout Records with the horn section. We had a better yeah. pop sensibility, I think. Cool. But I was with that band. I that was my band forever. That's actually how I got into recording was that band. And then we made a bunch of records, toured a lot. And then when that band broke up, I was in a band called Night Fevers who were like a major label pop band. And mm -hmm. then I was in like a post-hardcore band called Ice Cream Sine Waves. And then American Splendor was like my project when I moved out here. It started as just an acoustic project that I was doing myself. And then Kenny Schwartz, who is like this incredible studio drummer, but I've known him since we were 12, moved out to LA and I played him the demos and his response was like, this would sound good with drums. Mm -hmm. And then like, he kind of, he didn't, he was new here and being new in Los Angeles is really fucking hard. And I knew that from my experience when I came out here, well, let's just start a band. So like Kenny had something to do. Cause like, that's like when I moved out here, I didn't know anybody. And I like, I didn't know any of the bands. I didn't know how to like really click in because the scene, like the music scene in Los Angeles is significantly different than New York where I grew up. I mean, like my, my high school group and, and the surrounding high school, like our local bands were Taking Back Sunday, brand new Glassjaw, Jeff Rosenstock. Wow. Yeah. Like I went to fucking high school, it, you know, I saw Latterman play in my high school cafeteria. That's crazy. MR from Latterman was a senior in high school when I was a freshman. Oh, okay. That was actually like the band, you know, you were like, that was the band for me that like, I was like, oh, like I'm going to do this. Like mm -hmm. I, I actually saw, like I loved punk rock music. I was really into it, but I'd never really seen the only bands that I was really exposed to were bands that were bigger, that were playing on stages that were still kind of had a rock star vibe. <laughs> And Latterman were like on the floor of a cafeteria and there was like 300 kids going fucking crazy. And I could see that like the music really mattered to them. And like everything that was being said was something that I connected with. And I was like, oh, you can you can take this thing that's fun, but seemingly inaccessible and making it something that like you can actually like, like the ideals, the the music, the ethos can be applied to your life. Mm -hmm. But like the first... I mean, I, the first, my first music that I loved was, I loved John Denver and James Taylor when I was like four. I thought like they were the best. Rocky Mountain High, come on, baby yeah. boy. Yeah, it's classic, man. Grandma's Feather Bed all day long. I grew up on those as well. Were you exposed to those artists by your parents? Yeah, my, my mom was, uh, or is, I don't know. My mom's a photographer, but my mom, uh, she was a, like, a, like a Nashville country singer, but she suffered from severe stage fright and a bunch of other shit. <laughs> and uh she never really went she never really pushed it because it was something that wasn't as much of a priority as i guess having a family and so she didn't really pull that thread too much but mostly country music my mom played a lot and my dad is like a really big jazz nerd so like my earliest like music really like that i remember hearing and liking was like john denver 
uh, James Taylor, and then like this record called Money Jungle, which is like a Mingus record with uh, Duke Ellington and Max Roach. It's like a crazy lineup. It's like the dirtiest record in the world. It rules. <laughs> it's so good. Like I'm not even really a jazz fan, and I still love that record. It's like the it's like the black flag of jazz records. It's so fucking dirty and so like raunchy, and it's crazy because like Duke Ellington was always like this very like buttoned up guy, but then he's got this band with Mingus and Max Roach, who are just like shooting heroin and fucking being mm-hmm. insane. Yeah, they were punk rock. Dude, it really was. It's it's that record is really good. That was like my early and then the band that actually like really got me into punk rock was no effects wow very cool zach silverman in sixth grade gave me heavy petting zoo and said i want you to play bass in my band and i said i don't know how to play bass he said it's cool just learn this record so i bought a a cherry red squire bass p bass and i learned how to play every single song on heavy petting zoo and that's how i learned to play bass excellent so you started with bass i started with guitar but i wanted to Zach was a better guitar player than me, and I wanted okay. to be in the band. Bass. So you were a bass player out of necessity. That seems to happen a lot because you have a guitarist, and then you invariably have another guitarist, and then you need a bass player, right? I mean, it's funny now, too, because I still consider myself a guitar player, but the things I play professionally the most are bass and keyboards at this point and organ. I mean, I'm a fucking dog shit piano player, but I like organ is like a, especially for ska, because it's way more about like feel than it is about, it's more of a percussion instrument that you like. Yeah, especially in genres like reggae and ska. I think of a band like Rancid, where the keys keep time almost for all their ska songs. Vic Ruggiero from the Slackers played like on uh, Life on Wait, that was Vic Ruggiero. And then before that was uh, Roger from uh, from the Bullets and from uh, the Agrilites. Yeah, that dude is an animal. Like he is... I mean, so is Vic. Vic from the Slackers is one of the best songwriters in the world. Like, like, hands down, he's absolutely amazing. Oh, that's cool. I didn't realize he played on Life Won't Wait. I love that record. Yeah, that's my favorite Rancid record. <laughs> it's tough, right? <laughs> the thing is, the Outcome the Wolves exists. And that's like, I mean, I think Outcome the Wolves is, is probably the best punk rock record of all time, in my yeah. opinion. I think it was a conglomerate of like such an amazing, such amazing songwriting with incredible producing. Jerry mm-hmm. Finn produced that. Rick Gerwitz produced it. And what I loved was like, you know, with Jerry Finn, you know, he would do this thing where he would, he would see a band and aside from like songwriting and being producing and recording and shit like that, he could see the thing that made the band special and maybe the thing that embarrassed them a little bit. And he would be like, no, do that. So like with like Blink-182, like I love Blink-182, but he was like, you are the descendants with nursery rhymes go be the descendants with nursery rhymes. And that's what mm-hmm. they did. And like some 41, he was like, you're a pop punk band who loves my Iron Maiden. Do that. Alkaline Trio, you're spooky, be spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like, And with Rancid, you know, he was like, cool, you're a ska punk band and your singer is a fucking poet. Be a poet. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's like on Outcome the Wolves, there's like a, there's that like straight up like poetry reading in the middle of the record. But that yeah, record dude. is like, it, that record is no skips. It's, it's, it's flawless. It's so good. And like the yeah. production on it is like, one of the most like organic, wonderful things, especially now, like the way, like a, a lot that you hear in, in punk rock music and, and pop punk is can be like pretty synthetic sounding, which mm-hmm. is a vibe. Like, I don't think that if we tried to remake an outcome, the wolves in 2022, that it would hit the same. I think you're right. I think a lot of the process of that record and a lot of the way that record got made was a lot to do with like the technological constraints of how they had to do it. You know, they had right. to record it on tape. 
you know, they had to use real amplifiers. There was no, I mean, I have two Kempers sitting next to me right now. Like there's no Kempers. There's no, there's, there's mm-hmm. like a Marshall and your five guitars, a tape machine and whatever console you have in front of you. Right. Exactly. They also recorded that shit at electric lady. And I'm like pretty baller studio to do that. I was Jimi Hendrix's studio. Yeah. That's insane. It was probably recorded on a million dollar Neve board as well. Oh yeah. That place, my, my friend Vera, she was a uh, chief engineer there for a long time and Every time I went there, I was just like, it's so dope that you get to work here. Also being a chief, like being an engineer and being a, a woman in the industry, like she's such a fucking queen. The one thing that still kind of holds true in production is this, it's like, unfortunately, a bit of a boys club and like it sucks. It's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, especially, I mean, I work with a lot of like legacy bands and big quotes, you know, I, mm-hmm. like I do like no effects or I just did like a suicide machines record. And a lot of those bands, like a, the Jerry Finn bands or the old epitaph bands, I work with them. And there is still like a fair bit of broiness where you got to be like, like, yo dog, it's 2022. My assistant is a fucking trans woman. And like chill the fuck out with your misogynistic bullshit. Not to say that any of those bands are misogynistic bullshit artists, but like, it's easy to kind of let that shit slide when you've been used to being able to talk a certain way and no one's ever checked you. I can imagine with certain We'll people. say that fat Mike, that dude like the first time i ever was like yo fuck that shit you don't say that shit around me he like completely changed his attitude toward it okay cool people give that guy a lot of shit it's i'm gonna i'm gonna fucking give you an exclusive here excellent please do i appreciate it this is great the fucking guy that mike is on stage is an asshole but he's a clown and it's a character and in person, he's like one of the most sensitive and sweetest dudes I know. Like, so, so I had a baby a few, like nine months yeah, ago. Yeah, congratulations. My Back. wife did. I did almost nothing. <laughs> I like moved my hips for, tw- for, for three to eight minutes. <laughs> You're taking credit. I love it. But no, my wife got really sick and I had been producing no effects for maybe a month at the time. I was, uh, I started working with them in March last year and I hadn't known Mike very long at all. And my wife got very, really sick and it was like, Dottie was like three days old. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Dottie was like three days old and it was, it looked, it was pretty sketchy. And like Mike and his uh, fiance, Astara, like they didn't leave my side for like two weeks until she was out of the hospital. Wow. There. When I got COVID, I didn't have any place to go because I have a newborn and I was like, fuck, I slept in my studio. And then Mike found out about it and he was like, fuck that, come to my house. And I slept in Mike's back. <laughs> house well i do think that guy talks That's a lot amazing. of shit i think like he says a lot of shit on stage where like to piss people off because it's kind of a character and not kind of it is a character i think people people it's very easy especially with the internet because we have such access to people all the time that we think we know them mm-hmm. yeah I mean, that's how humans, humans think they know people by familiarity and like we're constantly looking at pictures and images and videos and you know, our brains aren't evolving as fast as technology. So our brains are still working on this. Like, oh, I'm seeing this person. I'm subconsciously building a relationship with them. I know them. Right. Yeah. People, I'm not saying that don't talk shit about Fat Mike because you definitely should. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, what I am saying is like, he's not this monolithic character a lot of people think he is yeah that makes sense uh, he gets a bad rap i think I, and, I, and i don't think it's fair i do think like he and and mel said some stupid bullshit at a festival that like they shouldn't have said the joke wasn't funny yeah regrettable 
that being said, like we were supposed to play in Vegas for punk rock bowling and I got a fucking death threat sent to my fucking DM. I was like, man, I've been in this band for five minutes. Like you're going to yeah. shoot me because I want to play keyboards and scream, kill all the white man. Punk rock of you. <laughs> yeah. Really bizarre how the paradigm has shifted on a band like no effects over the last decade or so. Thank you for giving us the exclusive on Fat Mike. That was amazing. I always got the impression that that's what was happening behind the scenes and how he was. Just in following him, even with all of the controversy, I would watch interviews with him and I would see that it was mainly a joke. It was mainly a character that he was playing. It was mainly a shtick. And he did seem like a very thoughtful, humble human being. And they did make a shitty joke on stage, and I do think there's room for redemption. They apologized immediately. There has to be room for redemption in there somewhere. I don't think he's trying to piss off every single person he comes into contact with, but he probably does have a bit of a loose tongue on stage. <laughs> I think it's both. <laughs> I think he likes to piss people off. like Stir the pot a little bit, for sure. Yeah, and I think like his his philosophy when it comes to like punk rock is like punk rock doesn't need to be safe all the time. Right. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that at all. Like I, I, what I loved about Latterman in my cafeteria when I was 16 was like people were fucking going off and dancing, but like no one was punching anyone in the face. No one was getting thrown right. into a wall. No one like there was, you know, if there was a crowd surfer, Macanino was like crowd surfing is fucking lame. Like mm -hmm. it was safe in the sense. And also like it was a safe place to be queer and to be black and to be a, or a person of color. Like it was, mm -hmm. it didn't matter. It was it was so like wildly inclusive and like, you know, right. Maddie Joe, I think I'm pretty sure they identify as, as trans and, and I could be wrong. Please cut that out if I'm wrong. <laughs> and I'll leave it in. Fuck it. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I like Reviver. I haven't since you fixed my bicycle when I was 16. So that's fine. Yeah. I think punk rock has always been a place for camaraderie, a place that's welcoming and inclusive. That's what I've always gravitated towards when it comes to punk rock. I just did a podcast with Mike and uh, these two dudes from Suicidal, from Suicidal Tendencies, and their context of punk rock is significantly different than mine. Like I was when I was listening to their stories about punk rock in the '80s, you know, it was like gang warfare in the in LA. Like it was literally gangs. Like there was like Circle One gang, and they had their own bands and like. You know, Suicidal had their own like Suicidal Tendencies was a band, but the gang was Suicidal, and like it was. You know, like they fucking stabbed each other and fucked each other up and people died and like it was some wild shit. And I was like, I would never have gotten involved with that. Like I right. I'm I am just too much of a pussy. I would never do that. <laughs> I don't like getting hit, getting stabbed. Yeah. Just don't sound fun. Get hit getting hit, I know from experience. I did getting stabbed, I imagine it to be not great because you gotta be there the whole time, like long. Like getting bam. That happened. Getting stabbed is like a, I like that this is also an audio medium that no one is going to see me do that with my hand. <laughs> yeah, I don't imagine getting stabbed is all that much fun, especially when you're just trying to go to a punk rock show and enjoy yourself and listen to some music. Like going to like, be like I'm going to go see the Dickies tonight. <laughs> like we're all going to go see the Wonder Years. Like, hell yeah, let's go see Soupy yell some shit. And then you got to worry about someone stabbing you. Fuck yeah, I'm out. Count me out. So like I I have a greater kind of I have a better understanding though of like why Mike and the older guys in punk rock in general are the way they are though because it means it doesn't mean the same thing to them. Sure, yeah. The underlying tendencies of like like and and ethos of like friendship and shit. Are you frozen? Are you just very still? You were just breaking up a little bit. It might be me, but I lost you. 
I mean, I'm at my studio, so like our internet is is uh is sketchy at best. Yeah, 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 no worries at all. It happens to me sometimes too. Yeah, I mean, there's only one other session going on in here right now, and I don't think they're using Wi-Fi. I don't even think they're using computers. Uh, Okay. <laughs> I think they're recording on tape. And you're based out of LA, right? Yeah. So I have a studio called Splendor Two in uh, in North Hollywood. Um, it's like a 4,500 square foot facility with, uh, five control rooms, two live rooms, um, a right. wood shop because we make our own furniture. That's amazing. Yeah. Like my, my room is, uh, like all the furniture in my room, like the studio furniture I built myself with, uh, with actually with my uncle in the desert one July 4th weekend. Cool. That's really cool, man. Yeah. He was, he was a prop builder and a lighting guy for movies for a while. So like, it's got all these like fun, like trick things and like kill switches and it's rad a dope piece of furniture when i started recording it was like i had a bedroom i was i was in the attic of this house that my future wife and like 10 of our friends were renting and i was working out of there mostly and i'd opened a few studios in new york before i moved to la and i mean studio if you want to like take a lot of money and just like throw it into a fucking giant furnace and never see it again you should open a recording studio <laughs> that's what i've heard um, but I got, so, I really lucked out here. Like I, these guys have been here for 30 years and I, I met them very randomly. I came here to do a yard sale and, uh, the dudes were in the back alley selling like recording gear. And I was like, no sick. And they were like, come check out the studio. And I walked in and I was like, holy shit. And, uh, I had just gotten sober at the time. I, I had like, you know, maybe like 30 or 40 days and in sobriety, they give you keychains. Mm-hmm. And I had like a key tag on my, uh, on my keychain, and this guy reached over and he grabbed the key tag and he shook it. And he's like, how much time you got? And I was like, not a lot. He's like, there's a room back there. That's just that we're using for storage, but it's a control room. If you want to clean it out, you can have it for free. If you can stay clean. Whoa. Wow. That's cool. I mean, I owe my career. There's like a couple people in the music industry who like really went out on a limb for me. You know, like these guys here, uh, Chris Wagner and Dan Pinella. Dan, who's one of the owners of the studio, he's from my hometown, but we met randomly at a yard sale. So he liked me already because I was from New York. Wag, you know, Wag was, Wag's been sober for 30 plus years. So like there's okay. always kind of recovery around me and, you know, they were always encouraging me to, I was working at Netflix at the time or for like a Netflix vendor. So I was mixing like episodic television and I hated it. It was a bummer. They convinced me to quit that and just do music and eventually made me a partner partner in the studio. Now I don't, now I'm not rent free anymore, but I was for a while. <laughs> That's really cool though. He took a chance on you Yeah, and he could relate to your story and your situation. Also, what a level of accountability that is. Did that create a sense of drive in you to stay sober um, or did it add a layer? It added a layer. I mean, I, I got sober because my wife, she was like, you got to go. <laughs> okay i was like no i'm so fun and she's like this was fun when we were kids but like we're adults now like you this isn't fun this is this is shitty and uh, uh so it became unfun yeah i mean the way the progression goes with like alcoholism or with drug addiction is like it's fun it's fun with problems and then it's just problems right that makes sense and most of the time the addict or the alcoholic is the last person to realize that it's just problems. Cause you're so in the, in your disease and you're so in, in your isolation that like other people just don't come into the, like you just live so selfishly for so long. 
mm. that other that other people, even people you love, like your family, just don't even come into the equation. You know, I I, right. I value my ability to be rational and logical. That's the thing I'm really good at. I'm not really good at expressing things emotionally. That's not myself, but I'm really good at thinking things through. Every decision that I made when I was in active addiction seemed completely logical, which is what fucks you up. Cause you don't think you're being shady. you think you're being logical. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once you get some clarity and recovery, like I, you know, do some step work. If you're, that's the thing you're into. I do. I work a 12 step program still. Okay, cool. And you get some clarity and you realize like the unmanageability and the selfishness in which you were existing in and how, and like, that's really where like all of your amends come into anyone who's familiar with 12 step, like amends step eight and nine. Sure. Did you start to isolate yourself? Oh man, I like this. I, when I talk about it, so like, uh, when I talk about it, if I share at a meeting or something, the way I talk about, um, using drugs is like flashlight tag. Have you ever played flashlight tag? I think I did when I was a kid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So flashlight tag is a lot like drug use. So like you go to the park late at night with your friends and you're just like flashing flashlights at each other and you're having a blast. Like you're having drinks with your friends. You're getting fucking, you're getting, you're trying drugs with your friends. You're getting all fucked up. Then like your friends decide that they're going to like, maybe not play flashlight tag as much, mm-hmm. but you still really are like really into flashlight tag. Like you might go pro. That's what you're thinking. So like you, you keep going back to that park and there's other people there now like that you're not really friends with. And they got like way weirder flashlights, but you're just still like playing flashlight tag. And then those people die of flashlight tag, but you think like, well, I'm not going to play that hard. And eventually it just becomes like you alone flashing a flashlight by yourself. Stumbling through the dark. Yeah. It's just you alone in a fucking bedroom hiding alcohol or you in your bathroom trying to stab yourself in the foot trying to hit a vein it's just this a degradation of of all relationships and like pure selfishness when all you really want to do is play flashlight tag with your friends right as much as you try you try to like make it i think addiction is very much like a an extension of the human experience i don't i think most people have something that they are addicted to, whether it be like internet, fucking TikTok or shopping, caffeine, sugar, caffeine. Oh my God. I'm drinking a Red Bull right now. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with you. I think we all have coping mechanisms for better or worse. Some may be more productive and some may be considerably less productive. Yeah. I mean, it's strange. I think humans have never been more connected in the history of humankind, but I also think we've mm-hmm. never been less socialized yeah and more isolated yeah i mean it, like it goes back to that internet thing that i was saying before like the cult of celebrity in the united states specifically i mean it's in europe too and i'm sure it's everywhere but like people develop these relationships with these people who they think they know because they have the same they have a common interest they both have an instagram oh fucking miley cyrus has an instagram we're the same i know this person and i'm like mm-hmm. no you know you know that pictures go in front of your face and your brain is like that's a familiar face i will store that in the familiar faces category of my brain sure it's a false perception so while we get some of like the some of the like social shit that our brain needs from the internet a lot of like the interpersonal stuff goes by the wayside and we, you know, it leads you to trying to medicate why that feeling doesn't feel right. Or, you know, and I'm not blaming the internet for my, my internet, the internet is my higher power. Like people, <laughs> like, you mm-hmm. know, some people have God or whatever. I, I, I don't know what I believe in anymore, but I don't know if it's that. Sure. It's funny. I, I used to be a real staunch atheist, like some on some like fucking like Richard Dawkins shit on some like Christopher Hitchens <laughs> shit. Like I'll fight a Christian over their, their beliefs. And now I'm like, man, I don't f- fucking know. <laughs> like, yeah. Like I like shit. 
especially now, like, you know, I'm a father and like fucking, sh- yeah, I look at my daughter and I'm like, holy fuck. Sure. I, like, I hope there's a fucking something that's looking out for you. That isn't just me. <laughs> like, sure. You know, I'm sure that changes your perspective. And I was going to ask you about that after having a daughter and becoming a parent. How do you think that's changed your overall outlook? I mean, you just mentioned something that has a spiritual connotation and I would imagine you reevaluate those things as you get a little bit older. I've experienced similar things in getting older, and maybe it's just more empathy for other people and their beliefs, but also humility and the fact that there's so much that I can't explain. I think when you're you're young, you have this drive to, I mean, your brain is growing. Right, exactly. So like you're acquiring all this knowledge. You have this drive to understand everything because if you don't, when you're a baby, if you don't understand how to walk, you'll just fall on your face and hurt yourself. And as you grow up, you're in school, you're learning, you're learning, you're, you know, you're, in, you're exploring social relationships, you're exploring romantic relationships, you're exploring your relationship with yourself. So like you're constantly picking up new things and you think as you're picking these up, like, how could I possibly know more? And you come to this con like, then you would start, you become like a conscious creature when you're about 16 and you think about all the things that were kind of instilled in you, like, like the belief in God or the, or faith or, or however it was presented to you. And, and you immediately have to question it or, or you don't, I know people who just have no, have unquestioning faith and I am, I am so jealous of those people. <laughs> Me too. Dan Savage did this podcast after his mother died. Uh, Dan Savage, did, he's the host of uh, Savage Love. It's like a sex and advice column. Mm-hmm. Love Dan he, Savage. He was doing this interview with Ira Glass. This is very podcasty, but it's true. Uh, he was His mom passed away and she was a Catholic. And he says, he's like, I remember very vividly like the peace and the the serenity that came to my mother as she was dying when she received the sacrament. And he's like, if I was the type of person to believe in God, I would, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I, I identify with that a lot. Like I, if I, my buddy has, my buddy's a deacon. He's one of my best friends. He's a deacon and has like a very deep relationship with God, his concept of God. Sure. Let's just call it God, whatever. I, I'm not going to naysay his shit, but he has a deep relationship with God. And like, I look at that and I see the comfort and the peace and the unquestioning concept of being loved by something. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm jealous of it. it Envious. Yeah. I, I wish I felt that way. Like I really do. The problem is like, there's so much other shit that comes with that concept. It, it's sure. at least with, with, with Western religion and uh, Judeo Christian Christianity. Like if you're going to accept that part, there's all the other parts you have to accept the totality of thought, the, you know, the thought crime is a thing in Christianity. Like if you right. think an impure thought, you're going to go to hell. Like, that's crazy. How could a loving creator be like, give you the ability to think and then also punish you for having a thought. That's crazy. Right. This is not pop punk. <laughs> no worries, my man. This is great. I've talked to a lot of people that have grown up in the church. So this comes up quite a bit. I, I, you know, I did, I've done a couple MXPX records and, and Mike is also in Goldfinger and, and him and I have had, you know, some, we were in, I think we were in Denver. We just like sat down in the, in the green room and just like talked it out. You know, yeah. I got, I have homies in, in that band Slick Shoes and, and Slick Shoes are still a Christian band. And, and, you know, I, are they really, that's kind of surprising. I believe, I believe so. Okay, cool. Same thing with like five iron, five iron frenzy. Yeah. Iron Frenzy, like Lenore is a fucking pastor at a church, you know, and, right. and Leonore's like, she's a homie. Like she came like we uh, no effects. I played my first show with no effects in Denver 
mm-hmm. um, when I first joined the band. Uh, my parents flew to the show wow, from New York. Cool. And Leonora came out to the show because she's like, I had to see this. She's like, I had to see you live a childhood dream. That's awesome. And like, but you know, she, you know, she, she's, she has un, unquenching faith, but that's, so I see how, especially in pop punk or ska punk or, or in that, like the, also, I mean, like a lot of huge bands came up through the, ch- their church, like playing church shows was a thing in New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, I met my girlfriend in high school playing her church, you know, cause it, cause you had a rec room. I mean, uh, I don't know how other scenes were. But like, yeah, Kansas City was like that as well. There was a big scene of local bands and we would play churches. Game Time was a band that would play churches. And there was a venue that was at the bottom of a really old church in Westport, Kansas City. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was sort of the odd man out in my band. <laughs> I was the secular one. I didn't know what secular meant for the longest time. But the other dudes in the band, they grew up in the evangelical world. Internet is fading. Oh, no. Can you hear me? Hello? Hold on. I'm going to switch this over. This is where John switches over his internet. And then before you know it, we're chatting again. Hello? Hey, you there? Hey, what's up, man? Hey, cool. I uh, I just switched to a computer that is hardwired internet. Um, oh, okay, cool. You you can, you can, uh, it was all on my, my, our Wi-Fi is a fucking nightmare. No worries, my man, it happens. Have fun editing this together. <laughs> no worries, man. I'm using the same mic and the same preamp, though, so it's the same and the same converter. I just swapped it to a different computer. This happens to me too sometimes with Zoom. I was just chatting with Ben from Yellow Card, and for the first 20 minutes, we were having issues on my end with the internet. So you know Ben Harper? I know the mo- I know like Ryan enough to be like, "Hey, at a show," and I know Ben enough to be like, "Hey, at a show." Red, very cool. I mean the the you know pop punk and punk rock. There's like eight of us. <laughs> I'll fucking know each other. It's true. It's a nice tight knit little community. I saw you did an episode with Kyle and I was like, damn. Yeah. Do. I love Kyle. Yeah. I met Kyle on tour when he was 16 back in 2002. Was he scary talented when he was 16? Cause he's scary talented now. He was. Yes. That whole band was extremely talented. Kyle Castellani is one of the best vocalists I think I've ever heard. He had perfect pitch. They were always flawless live. Really talented dudes. Aaron, their drummer, amazing drummer. Charlie, their guitar player. Yeah, Kyle was amazing. They were all just really cool dudes to hang out with and play with. I remember we played with them in their hometown in California, and there was three major label A&R people there to see them play. Man, what a, what a time when UMG A&R was giving a shit about music with guitars in it. <laughs> yeah, for real. I say that as someone who works with UMG all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, man. But you're going to bring guitars back, right? Please do. I mean, I, who knows? I, I I think that, like, I don't like Machine Gun Kelly's music, but I do think it did. It brought back into, like, the popular consciousness, like, the connection between a singer-songwriter and a guitar and guitar music. You know, I think, like, pop punk specifically is having, like, such an interesting moment. I mean, like, my my yeah. management, like, the last, I don't know, the, like, last, like, four or five sessions that I've done through my management have all been for artists in that realm. So I just did like a, I'm working with Crooked Teeth right now. I'm working with Talker. It's all like kind of based in like pop punkiness, which is rad. Cool. I mean, like thing is about it, like that kind of music, like uh, to be completely honest, like it's not really my thing. I just like, I understand it very well. And like, sure. I understand the mechanics of it. 
So when I work on those records, I very much feel like a technician. Well, also like, you know, the way that I think pop punk is perceived or consumed and like how what people are used to hearing is very technical sounding mm-hmm. as opposed to organic. And that's not to shit on pop punk at all. Like I, you know, there are pop punk bands that I love, but I'm generally listening to like my Spotify is generally like, I like Casey Musgraves a lot. I like, uh, I'm really into Kississippi. I think she's fucking amazing. Yeah, she's great. Oh my God, dude. Big Dipper all day long. I could listen to that song and read. I mean, I have had days where I'm just like, it's Big Dipper Tuesday. Let's go. <laughs> On repeat. Yeah. That's cool. And, and it's, you know, and, you know, and I, and I like love like, like, and if I'm not listening to like that kind of more subdued stuff, I'm listening to like street punk or skate punk. Like that's really, which like, you know, the roots of pop punk are in that. Of course. Yeah. Uh, which is, I think, why, like, when I am producing a pop punk band or a pop punk project, like, I understand what they're going for because I understand, like, the predecessor music really, really well. I think it's also why, like, my client base, though, like, is mostly what people would consider, like, classic era epitaph and fat records punk bands. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the style of music that I grew up on. And I absolutely adore that style of skate punk. And when I was growing up, the lines were blurred with pop punk and that skate punk style. So a lot of it felt the same or from the same DNA to me. Fucking Warp Tour, like, you know, yeah. or was, I think it was important for so many things, but I think like putting a band like Yellow Card on a stage next to NoFX and putting us all out for seven weeks at a time, we were all going to talk to each other and we were yeah. all going to take something from it. And whether you took like, you know, wow, those bands are really fucking scary or like, you know, those bands are really technically really good. It really helped reinforce and really shape pop punk into not just this like, you know, because now I think it, there's a significant emotional depth to it that was not so much there in the days of like Simple Plan. Right. What I like about Simple Plan is their songs are are like you get what you pay for, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's that's not like I'm not shitting on it at all but like it is very surfacey at least the stuff from like early 2000s yeah of course and as a lot of those kids who kind of grew up on that started bands they took that sensibility but also you know i think that death cap for cutie has had a massive impact on on pop punk i don't think a single pop punk guy i know isn't into like transatlanticism or plans the emotional depth of those records like an emo in general you know there was that moment where like everyone fucking loved american football and i was like yo welcome to the party we've been here for fucking 10 <laughs> years yeah i mean like the wonder years now, the wonder years are, are, are a really good example of like a pop punk band that like did the newfound glory vibe for a second and then like pivoted into something that like, you know, even with like Aaron West and the roaring twenties and all the soupy side projects, like there's an emotional depth to that music that like, I think was initially lacking in the first wave of pop punk music yeah, from when sure. I was a kid. Yeah, for sure. It transcends a bit. And I do think emo plays a role in that. And even some of the older pop punk, it really melded with the emo scene as well. And it became something from the emo I scene. I love like Midwest emo. Like it's like the Promise Ringer, one of my favorite bands of all time. I I went to South by Southwest in 2013 specifically to see Maritime were playing two shows. And I was like, cool. 
I will buy a ticket and buy a hotel room and buy a fucking press pass if it means I can see Maritime twice because they <laughs> never, ever, ever, ever play. I watched them with 13 of the most excited people in the entire world. <laughs> I was like, I don't understand why not why not everybody loves this band. They have this record called Heresy in the Hotel Choir that is just mm-hmm. like, oh my God, fucking chef's kiss. Everything about it. But like band like Jimmy Eat World will talk about like if if the promise ring weren't a band, if Davey Von Bonn wasn't the singer of a band like Jimmy Eat World would sound drastically different. Oh, of course. Davey yeah. sang on a praise course. The singer of the promise ring sang the bridge on a praise course, which is like yeah. Jimmy Eat World's breakthrough single. And he mentions his name in that song. Yeah. Come on, Davey. Sing me something that I know. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think they had a profound impact on pop punk. It's it's super funny. I I went and saw Maritime play because they played in Brooklyn, and I was like, holy! It was when I was living in Brooklyn. I was like, holy shit, I'm going. So I went to watch Maritime and Texas is the reason played to like 30 people. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy because like no one gave a shit, but the bands were so fucking good because it was before this was like probably 10 years ago. So it was before like emo really had its like resurgence. And I was talking with Davey after the show. I was like, man, why the fuck are you guys playing Brooklyn on like a Wednesday? And he's like, well, he was either here or go to Japan, but the Japan tour was uh, in the middle of soccer season and I coached my kid's soccer team. And I was like, that is ridiculous. <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, do they, I was like, do the parents like know who you are? He's like, some do, but he's like, most people have no idea like what I've done. They just know that I'm a musician. And I was like, wow. that's crazy. I would love if my soccer coach was like, Davey Von Bonn, are you kidding me? Like fucking Captain Jazz shit. Dude, I would never talk to him about soccer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, I, I would honestly, I would try at sports if it meant he would talk to me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> That's awesome, man. I didn't realize you were such a big fan of the Midwest emo music scene. I actually just had Jim Septic from the Get Up Kids on. Amazing. I, I worked with, uh, so I was Peter Cadis's, I was a, an intern for Peter Cadis mm-hmm. um, for a little while, and I worked cool. with Get Up Kids. We were watching. So Peter Cadis' studio was, it probably still is, or I'm kind of out of touch with him at this point because it was so long ago, but Peter Cadis' studio was in this like Victorian house in Connecticut and Bridgeport, like Mm -hmm. very close to the prison, but it was very funny. So there was all these like signs that said like, don't pick up hitchhikers. But then it was this beautiful Victorian house and his studio was in the, was in the attic. And he sort of had the house like subdivided. So like a band, like completely separate. So like his family were in one part and bands would be in the other. And we were sitting in the living room and uh, we were watching, I think we were watching Taking Back Sunday play like the VMAs or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Dewey's is like, uh, he was just like, I can't help but feel a bit responsible for this. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. That's really funny. Uh, yeah. I've actually been wondering what's up with James lately. Well, I, it may have been prior actually. Said well, that, they both the, were kind of responsible for that. I mean, Dewey's was everywhere. I mean, like I, I was front of housing at Bamboozle for this good robot and for saves the day and Mm -hmm. he was playing with saves the day oh really james was yeah so he was playing keyboards on stage with them he wasn't doing the whole the whole bamboozle tour he just like would show up and be like i'm playing keys today and i'm like well looks like i'm adding an input to the old front of house (laughs) that's cool man you're versatile if you don't mind me asking you how old are you i'm 33 okay cool yeah, you're young. You've seen a lot in your time. I'm actually about to turn 38. How old were you guys when you were watching Taking Back Sunday? I was 20. Okay, so it was the year 2006 or seven? That maybe seems right. <laughs> I I mean, well, I was. It had to be 2008 because I was 20. Like my first 
professional recording session was when I was 16. Okay, cool. My father has been like a huge proponent of my career and of music in general. Like my dad had like my dad. So we used to have like these like bowling alley shows and like backyard shows or, or like VFW hall shows. And the problem with New York was like, we would just get shut down after one show and we'd lose the venue because people were just, you know, going off. Yeah. So like my dad would, essentially chaperone the punk rock shows and like if he saw like kids crowd surfing he would like pull like he i remember he uh um there was this amazing band called the tomahawk chop they were fronted by uh this dude dan clemens who if you haven't heard the tomahawk chop they are so fucking good like they rule i haven't heard them but i will check them out their singer is guy dan clemens and dan like loved a crowd surf he really did and he started crowd surfing at this like bowling alley show. And my dad like picked him up and put him on the floor. And he was like, Hey man, we got to respect the space. And I was like, that's punk rock P graves. And then everyone just called my dad P graves from then on. And like, <laughs> um, but yeah, so like my dad uh, for my 16th birthday, he was like, you know, cause it was clear from a really young age that I was going to do music. I started playing guitar when I was four. Okay, cool. It was the only thing that would hold my focus. I was not a good student. I was not even that good of a kid or a teenager. I was pretty fucking nightmare ish. Not like I was, I was just like sneaking out and doing lots of drugs and being a piece of shit. Now I was 16. My dad was like, you know, he's like, I want you to have this experience. I'm going to get you some studio time for your band. So you can like see what a real studio is like. Cause we had made records with our friends in basements and they always sounded like fine, but they didn't sound good. Mm-hmm. So he booked us some studio time at, uh, at voodoo studios with uh which mike watts place so like um glass jar recorded there and uh wow that's uh, cool. the deer hunter and shit like the chariot lots of bands recorded i mean deja Tandu, that brand new record that we're all supposed to pretend we don't actually like because brand new are a bunch of garbage fucking people uh-huh. uh yeah <laughs> a lot of that record got done there too by steve hagler that's what i thought very prolific producer mike watts yeah mike watts is he's a fucking animal man he's so good his mixes are crazy. He's he's always been good. Like when, even when we were children, he was good. Yeah, for sure. But we we booked time there, and that was really like my first experience. It was for my 16th birthday. It was my first experience in a studio where I was like, "This is a proper studio." It was incredibly illuminating. I think my dad wanted me to do it because he wanted me to be in a band. Mm-hmm. And what I took away from it was like, oh, I don't want to be in a band. I want to do what the engineer was doing. Uh, okay, you got the bug. And that's kind of how like I. And then from there, like recording kind of sort of became a necessity. I, I went to college for classical music, actually. I have, a, I have a fucking degree in classical composition. Really? Yeah. I don't know why. I just needed something to do, I think. <laughs> no, that's um, awesome, man. Where'd you go? Uh, I went to the music conservatory at SUNY Purchase. I went to like a really like a very good music school. <laughs> that's legit. Yeah. Music schools were the only people who really saw and art schools were saw the potential because I was a garbage fucking student. I mean, like in high school, I just didn't go. Problem was like I grew I grew up like a twenty five minute train ride from the biggest city in the entire world that had all of the art and culture I could ever want to consume in a day, and I was sure. like I could go to high school or I could go gallery hopping in Chelsea and like look at fucking art or I could go down to St Mark's and like go to Trash and Vaudeville and buy pants or I could go to CBS and see a show or catch a matinee at like in the Lower East Side you know right it was all right there I mean it was all right there it was and- accessible. Yeah. And there was always music and art going on. And and so I would just, I just bailed and barely graduated high school. And then I ended up going to SUNY Purchase because I had already gotten into my top choice, which was actually U Arts in Philly. But I ended up going to Purchase because I went and it didn't give a shit at my audition and was just like, this is who I am. And they offered me a full ride, like on the spot. Wow. Unreal. Let's do it. That's really cool. 
I went there for classical composition and recording kind of became a necessity because I was, I needed to record my pieces. And I thought what the engineers were charging me was vastly over inflated. And in, in retrospect, I am wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but you thought that at the time. $200 to record my shitty classical music. Fuck you. That's too expensive. <laughs> so I started recording again. And that's when I really like, I was, I interned for Chris Davies at Pulse Music in New York City. He made me an assistant. He was also the first person to fire me because he made me an assistant. And then one of his clients called me an intern and I set up, I had a deck of cards and I set up a game of solitaire on the console and ignored them for a session because they pissed me <laughs> uh, We finished the session okay. and he was like, I got to fire you. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Still really good friends. He, he's, he's, uh, I mean, he was only a few years older than, than me and, and he's way more in like modern rock land. Mm-hmm. He kind of like transcended out of punk while I was like, I'm going to be punk rock forever. What are some of his recent projects? I know I've heard that name before. He does like Brass Against, Tool. He's done Dragon Force stuff. Okay, very cool. He is a fucking animal. Like he uh, he is one of the most underrated engineers in the entire world. Like it's crazy to me that I get work and he doesn't. I'm just like, if people knew how talented Chris was, no one would fucking hire me. I love, <laughs> I love the fact that you mentioned that and the fact that you've mentioned Kyle Black and even a person like John Feldman earlier. I love the fact that you guys can all champion each other's work and respect each other. Seems like you guys are all buds. Feldman is like... I was saying before, like I owe my career to a few people. Feldman is one of them. What I love about John and like what is special about our relationship is that I never worked for John. I okay. always, I always worked with John on some specific projects. Yeah, it's a pretty huge distinction because I was never in his shop. Uh, okay. I mean, I would do sessions at his place, but I was never like an in-house guy for him. Which meant like all the time that John and I got to spend together producing or engineering or writing was time that like we were hyper focused on that. Mm-hmm. So it was like really special shit. I mean, like I have a kid because of partly because of John. I mean, like my wife wanted a kid and I did not. I was, you know, because I tour a lot and I also studio life. I'm yeah. I'm in sessions. I mean, I'm right now I'm booked. What's it's January twelfth. Twelfth. Yeah, I'm booked until the end of June. Wow. And I'm and and I have no day off right now until until February. Unreal. That's crazy. That's cool. Really lucky. I work a lot. I work a lot. I'm really lucky. But like, yeah. you know, that that takes a lot out of a family. And like also like my dad, as much as he was like kind of a champion for like what I was doing, my dad worked a lot too. And like I didn't really know my dad until I was like 13. I honestly, I know my dad because of 9-11. That's crazy to say. <laughs> but my dad worked next door to the Twin Towers and was fucking there. Wow. After 9-11, my dad quit his job in New York City and just worked from home and he was just home all the time. And then that's like when I got to actually know my dad. That is interesting. Yeah. So do you think that was like a cataclysmic shift in his perspective and his paradigm? He wanted to be home. He wanted to be present. He wanted to be with his family. Yeah. Well, I also think like, you know, shit, like my dad spent most of that day on the roof of his building begging people not to jump off a fucking building. Like it, 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 I think really changed him it changed him in a way like a profound change in my father after that yeah it makes sense and it didn't make it it made him more present you know and it made sure more of a more of like a staple in my life because before that he was just like the guy who came home at nine o'clock at night hung out with me for a minute and then went to bed you know which and also like again i'm not like shitting on my dad like you know he did the best they could I, when you have a kid you realize that your parents are just like <laughs> they're fucking making it up as they go along they have no Dude, idea what they're doing they're growing up too 
that's something that I've realized now in adulthood that they were growing as I was growing as people. My mom was in her 20s when she had me. Like, <laughs> yeah. Couldn't have a kid in my 20s. <laughs> Get, kidding me? You mentioned brain development earlier. I think I've just in the last few years realized that, oh, yeah, our brain is malleable and it's not fully developed by the time we're 25. You know, it takes until we're about 25, 26 for it to be fully developed. And then it's crazy to think that there's people who are having children before their brain is fully developed. What do you think the parallels are between you and your dad? It sounds like your dad had a work ethic. Did he teach you that? My dad's work ethic definitely bled into the pro- the, the big separation is I love my job and my dad fucking hated his job. My dad okay. retired and like threw himself the biggest fucking party of justice. <laughs> I love it, man. My dad was like, I'm going out to dinner alone. And I'm going to I'm going to drink scotch and fucking praise myself for not murdering somebody. <laughs> um, my dad hated during his tenure of work. Yeah, my dad was an attorney, and he just like he told me growing up, he's like, "I'll support anything you do, but if I ever see a law school application in your hand, he's like, I will fucking kill you." Wow. Okay. <laughs> he hated it. I mean, it just like, like he was good at it. You know, he you know he he had a really long storied career in New York as a litigator. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of like in law. Like my dad teaches does like uh, lectures at colleges. Also like my fucking uncle was the Dean of law at Harvard for a minute. Uh, yeah. That's, well, it's really interesting. Like my dad's family is incredibly academic and, yeah. and even my, like my brother is about to be a, uh, my sibling is about to be a fucking doctor. I'm like, I'm my wife and I are like, we just make art. <laughs> like, <that's all> we <laughs> do. Right. But I can tell just by talking to you that you're a thoughtful, intelligent person. So that makes sense that that carried over. Have you told your dad how much you love your job? Oh yeah, they're they're very aware. I mean, this been very supportive. Yeah, I got really, I got really lucky. Like my career, so I work a lot, but like I got really lucky because I'm not good at anything else. Like I'm not good at holding a job. I, like power structures always bother me. I I generally think that I have better ideas than any manager that I had at any job. Job. I didn't respect like the corporate hierarchy at all. So you're an entrepreneur. I ha- by fucking necessity. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you kind of have to be. I mean, you got to eat. Yeah, I get that. When I moved to Los Angeles, I, I moved out here for a job that I thought existed. And then I found out it did not in the music industry. And I was like, I'm leaving the music industry. And I actually got a job at a, as a law clerk. And I was like, maybe I'll just go to law school and bum my dad out. Processing <laughs> evictions in Southern California. Oh man. I started intentionally fucking up the paperwork so people wouldn't lose their homes during the holidays. <laughs> that is so punk rock. The lawyer called me into her office and she was like, I know what you're doing. I understand it. She's like, but that's not our business. And my response was, well, then I guess we have a pretty shitty business. <laughs> and uh, she was like, I'm going to have to fire you. And my response was, Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm noticing a theme here. I mean, I, I'm really lucky that I have a, a lack of options really is what I was trying to get at is like my, my lack of options was pretty freeing. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned constraints earlier and I think it can be helpful when you've got those constraints that you have to work around. Yeah. I mean, I used to, when I, when I was writing music, I, I, I would run up against this like, man, like I want to do this, but this, but it's just not like, it doesn't sound right. Or like, it doesn't follow these rules or like, you know, especially in, in like classical music or something like, mm-hmm. you know, it's so steeped in tradition that like breaking any of that tradition can cause people to think your music sucks. And uh, I was talking to this other composer. He was talking about, he was writing like very rigid serialized music, which is like music that is derived from like numbers. 
and rows mm-hmm. and shit. And I was like, I was like, that doesn't sound creative at all. And he's like, no, it forces you to be creative within a box within like, within the scheme of these rules. This is how you stay creative within the parameter set. Yeah. Set. Yeah. That really resonated with me. Cause like I, I'd always found like my ideas where even in pop music or punk music were, were always kind of, I'd always try to push things that didn't make sense or like, you know, do things that didn't serve the song that just did things that make things interesting music. It's good to do that from time to time, I think. Sure. And now, like now I love breaking a rule and like pushing restraint and like making, doing weird changes or, you know, I mean, Mike and I from NoFX. I was going to say, you're probably doing that a lot with NoFX right now. Oh man. Like Mike's commitment to a melody is insane. That dude and I will sit with a melody and then play like, four, five, six different iterations of a chord progression underneath it and really mm-hmm. push the harmony as much as possible. Cool. I love that. But like, yeah, operating within, like even now, like with uh, when it comes to like punk rock mixing or producing, there are set kind of parameters of like what was is expected sonically from a record. And that actually is like incredibly liberating because I can like, I'm like, I know what I can do within this box here. And then sure. if it feels stale, if it feels shitty, if it feels like it's not working, I know that I can push against it, but I at least have like a roadmap. Yeah. The path. Yeah. I like that. Recovery is like the same way. Like I, I stay sober the same way. Like I, I you know, I, I work a 12 step program because it's do these 12 things and you'll be totally fine. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, sick. Like I can do 12 things. I don't even need to do all 12 in a day. Fuck. Yeah. Hell yeah. I just need to do like three, maybe one, sometimes none. Sick. Yeah. Working within those constraints. Yeah. How often do you go to meetings? I used to go every day, but I have a child and a career now. I mean, sure. life shows up like what, you know, the gifts of recovery are pretty wild. Like they're for me, they were also pretty immediate. Like I got sober and within just a couple of years, like my career went from doing records that like they were important to me and they were important to the people who I was making them for, but they weren't important to people writ large. And then within just a couple of years, I was making things that were in front of a a much wider audience working with bands. Like, you know, it isn't lost on me. The fact that I get to have like a shaping hand in the sounds that shaped me. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when I, like I'm producing, like whether it's producing Goldfinger or it's producing no effects or, or, or working with suicide machines, like those records, like I, I like destruction by definition, that suicide machines record is fucking huge for me. Unreal dude. Another Jerry Finn production. Jerry Finn. Yeah. I mean, he is my guy. Like he, you know, if there's anyone who I like emulate, it's Jerry. I was going to ask, did you ever get to meet him? No, he passed okay. away before. I, I, I mean, he, he died in 2008. Yeah. I wasn't really like on the scene really. I mean, I didn't sure. produce, I didn't really produce my first record until 2013. Yeah. You were 20. What was the first official record you were producing um, on? First full length LP was I produced and like, I had the entire guiding hand in was this record for Eli Whitney and the sound machine. They did a record called reasons to leave. They were a band that like were friends with my band and they liked mm-hmm. my band a lot. And they were the first artists that really trusted me to give them honest feedback about their songs. And they actually like, they will still talk about how like it was transformative for them. They're in a new band now called cold Rex. That is fucking awesome. But they were like, you know, we've never thought about songwriting the same since. And for me, it was, it was as transformative because it really allowed me to explore what production philosophy meant to me. I mean, I, you know, I say like, I owe a lot of my career to Feldman and I do, but also like Feldman and I have very Feldman's commitment to the song, the way Feldman is committed to the song. I feel like I'm committed to the artist. Ah, interesting. Our ideas are very desperate. I think the producer's role is to identify what the artist is trying to say and help clarify the idea. That's it. Mm-hmm. 
And like, you can write with the artist for sure. And you can interject your ideas, but the, and you can have a guiding hand, but really it's about the artist. Like no one is, no one is looking at the liner notes. No one cares. Mm. And I'm fucking totally down with that. I love anonymity. I love that. Like I can work with bands that have millions of fans and I can also go to the grocery store and no one's going to bother me. <laughs> That's nice, right? It gives me, because it gives me all that I need, really. Like I, I playing shows for me and, and that stuff, like while it was fun, it was never the thing that I really gave a shit about it. I cared about the songwriting and I cared about the artistic expression. And yeah. in production, like the best thing that I can do as a producer is make sure that my artist is saying the thing that they're trying to say as clear as possible. I mean, like the We Are The Union record I made, um, The Ordinary Life, like that record, Mm -hmm. like... It's a great record. Thank you. Uh, I love that record. But that record is like, we, it's a story of Reed coming out as a trans woman and like her experience of dysphoria and mental health and, and things like that. And we, her and I would, I mean, we had like screaming fights over like the use of the word the, Mm -hmm. that's not even like a hyperbole, like that happened. (laughs) The things that I will parse, like I'll parse a melody or I'll parse a chord progression if it needs to be touched. But like no one has ever, other than a musician has ever been like, what a cool chord progression. Most of the time people consuming the music are like, that thought is a thought that I've had and that resonates with me. Yep. So like, and when you're broaching a topic like gender dysphoria or confronting racism or or confronting bigotry or self-exploration, it's really important that you get it right. Mm -hmm. And that, that it, that it comes off as something that is relatable because that record can change someone's mind about how they feel about something without them even knowing. Absolutely, man. Can change a life, can shift a perspective or a paradigm. I mean, I think what's important about, about that that we are the union record about ordinary life is that it it introduced people to a trans person who they knew, you know, Reed, she had been so active in the punk scene with we are the union for so long. And she was the fucking worst, you know, she was an asshole. (laughs) Like she'll even say it. She's my best friend in the entire fucking world. She's actually (laughs) sitting in the other room right now. I think I work with her every day, but like she was a nightmare and she was a nightmare because she, her body and her brain and her everything was telling her something was wrong and she didn't know how to deal with it. And I think while not everyone is trans, I do think that we, everyone has had an experience where they're like, I, this isn't right. Why do I feel this way? And like what I think made ordinary life so accessible to people who weren't trans was the fact that like, it didn't really matter that it was about dysphoria because it was about like the feelings that are attached to that and the experience Mm-hmm. You know, and the desperation associated with it. Yeah. Listening uh, in recovery, people say, listen for the similarities, not the differences. And I think like, it's very easy to be very judgmental and be like, I'm not like that. But when you hear it presented in a way that you are like, it makes, it hits different. And like Absolutely. that, I think like as a producer, that's what I want, you know? Yeah. I like don't that. really, really care about a number one single or, a, I mean, I would love a Grammy because I would love to give it to my dad and my mom, <laughs> but sure. like those things go by the wayside. Cause I think all those things kind of come with time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are plenty of artists who make music that I love, who've never been recognized by the, by any of the institutions who still make records that are important. And right. Exactly. The accolades may come in time, but as long as you're enjoying what you're doing and you think it's yeah. important. And also I think like the accolades also for me come from when I get 
like you know we were in dallas no effects we did our last show of the year in dallas in december and i was walking back to the hotel room from the venue because the venue was next door and i was like i love this i was walking back to my hotel room and there's just these punk rockers in the parking lot who were like jay graves fuck yeah like and they were like let's take a picture and they're like it's they're like there was this one guy this cool fucking dude i'm trying to remember his name he like sought me out at the show and he's like so no effects did a patreon stream during Mm -hmm. covid uh while we were doing pre-production for the record yeah and he was like i just gotta say he's like watching you on there it's like watching one of my friends do the thing that we all said we were gonna do and like that's a real accolade like that's that's yeah. some real recognition like that like because that's what i that's what i am you know mm-hmm. i'm a fucking punk rock fan who fucking lucked his way into making it a fucking career but i'm a fan you know what i mean like yeah and i love that and i get to still keep like and that my my buddy justin who like uh he, he was in one of my first bands back when i was like in like baby band you know when i got into no effects he was in germany now he texted me and he was like He's like, this is wild. He's like, this is like, like what we were dreaming about when we were kids. Like we would play no effect songs in his fucking parents' attic, you know, badly. That's rad. Mostly wrong. Like, I don't, I don't need a statue for that. I can, I get to have like the human experience. And that's also kind of what I bring to my, my productions. I, like I said, I try to keep things as organic as possible. I like recording real drums. I like recording real guitars. I that said, I have two Kempers. Uh, I like, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like, I mean, you know, I'll do whatever needs to get done to make sure the record is the right thing. But like, sure, like you said, you're also a technician. Yeah, but I would, you know, going back to like an outcome, the wolves. Would it make sense to make that record now? What made that record special was how organic it was, mm-hmm. you know, and how real it was, and the things that were being said on there were things that were important to the songwriter. And there's no production to hide behind. It's just the song. It's organically yeah. how it was written is how it was hit, how it hits you. And Jerry Finn had such an incredible touch in the mix for like Ruby Soho and oh shit. Like, you know, even just like the way that fucking snare kicks in for the chorus, you know, like yeah, classic, Oh man, really unbelievable production from Jerry Finn. He was one of the best for sure. Well, dude, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been really fun. I've been following your work for a while now. I've been following you, and you've always seemed like a cool guy, but this has been really enlightening. And I really appreciate you taking the time today because I know you have a session today, right? You're going in to record with NoFX today. I do. I'm going to be with NoFX in just a couple hours. I have one more question for you, and you can be as detailed or as not detailed as you'd like here, but... How did it work with the last Goldfinger record with Don't Look Back? Because I feel like during that process, I saw perhaps it was Reed and you playing guitar, almost as if you were tracking guitars. Was it a situation where Feldman gave you demos and you guys helped architect the songs and construct the songs and maybe even write and record the songs? How did that work? We made that record in like isolation. So mm-hmm. like it was in the height of the pandemic first wave. Oh, okay. The way it happened was we did, Felbin wanted to make some live videos from quarantine. So we did, mm. I think the first one we did was here in your bedroom. Um, yeah. We did like a, a, a bunch of those. And, and so I mixed all of those and cool. I recorded, Charlie has an, an absolute inability to use a computer the guitar player. I, <laughs> yeah. I fucking love that guy, but I like computers just get near him and catch on fire. He's just, he's, <laughs> he's got a dark cloud when it comes to technology. So Charlie would sit in my live room and we would talk to each other over the headphones and we tracked guitars that way. And Charlie just got really comfortable working with me 
So Feldman was like, hey, I want to make another Goldfinger record. I wrote these songs. And he sent demos to Reed and I and Charlie. And he's like, you guys just, he's like, you want to do this with me? Like, let's do it. So Reed sang harmonies. Reed played guitars. I played guitars. I played all the keyboards. I wrote all the percussion arrangements for like the like shakers and tambourines and shit like that. We got Kenny Schwartz to perform all that stuff. Cool. But yeah, like we we did that kind of separate from John. We were we would send John dailies and we would send John sessions when we had things wrapped up so we could hear where we were going. And he would be like, yeah, keep going that way or don't go that way. We gave him like we gave him a ton of shit um, cool. for every song. And then John got took that stuff and went with it. I love the record. Oh, thank you. It's on my wall right now. I'm looking at it. It was really fun to do it because it was it wasn't like the context of like a normal John Feldman production. Mm-hmm. It was significantly like more collaborative. John can have a pretty heavy hand in production sometimes. I think he would even admit that. And this was just like, no, like I trust you guys just fucking, you know, do it and send me what you got. And like, if it's sick, we'll use it. If not, we'll just keep writing on it. But that record really evolved. I mean, it, the, even the first demos to the way the record sounds now, like there's also some songs that didn't make the record that like, I like the best Goldfinger song. <laughs> I, in my opinion, is a song that didn't make that record. <laughs> wow. Okay, cool. Do you think he'll release it? I've talked to him about it before. I was like, he, we might do a deluxe release, but I don't know. Um, and he's like, I would include it on the deluxe release. I was like, that song is just so fucking good. That would be rad. But it was also kind of strange because we weren't, we weren't really working together. We were like learning, like everybody else, learning to how to collaborate, not in person. It was also, you know, in like the early days of Zoom. You know, we're like, I really only knew about Zoom because of AA and NA, like all of our meetings, like, you know, recovery immediately took to Zoom. It was just like, cool, we can't go to meetings. Zoom. Zoom. Yeah. Um, That makes sense. But like, you know, so we would, there's a lot of FaceTiming with Feldman while we were playing parts and he'd be like, yeah, buddies, it sounds great. Or be like, no, that's not what I want at all. Does he deliver feedback pretty well? Oh, yeah. He's another guy that people have really strong opinions about John too. And they feel like one way or another about him. And I, I also think it's like kind of un John is very much like, again, like people don't understand his commitment to the song. He doesn't necessarily care about your feelings and he doesn't have to like, he yeah. cares about that. The song is right. Sure, I've heard that. Um, but when it comes to delivering feedback, like he's, you know, he's, I like feedback. That's really direct. I don't want to try to interpret someone's revision notes or, or anything like that. So that I, I appreciate with John's like, that sucks. Like the way that Reed and I talk to each other when we're recording, like we're, you know, if she's, <laughs> she's playing guitar. I'm like, you fucking suck, dude. Again. Like, like uh, and, and like, or like I'll be playing bass and she's like, you're fucking it. Like, but like, that's just, I find that like, if you can be as clear as possible in revision notes or mix notes, or even just in any thought, there's no room for interpretation anymore. It's just, it's just what you want. I mean, it took me a long time, like Mike from no effects. It took me a long time to get Mike on board with that concept too. Cause Mike, Mike is so cerebral that he'll like, he'll give you a note that is just like out of this world. And you're like, what the fuck does that even mean? And I was like, <laughs> no, I need, I need you to like clarify your thought and tell me exactly what needs to change. Cause I, like, I'm not, I'm too busy to try to play guesswork and figure you out and go on like revision 35 or some shit like that. I'm not sure. You know, I, I do, I work on a minimum of about 20 songs a week. And I do, I, last year, I think I did like 80 releases just last year. That's insane, man. My output's wild. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I would say so. But like, so I, but I think that is like a function of the fact that like, I'm very clear 
and very concise about what I'm doing. And I expect the same thing for my clients. And if I'm not getting that, I have great management who can either impart that on them that themselves, or I can have a conversation with them and be like, this is what I need from you to, to yeah. get the thing that you want. I need you to tell me exactly what you want. Like, so when someone's like that snare sounds, sounds too soupy. I'm like, what the fuck is soupy? <laughs> like, is there too much mid range? Is it too much reverb? Like soupy could mean it could be swimming in something. It could be too wet. It could be too thick. What do you, what do you, uh, you know? Right. Because you've got to take that feedback and then act accordingly with it. So you want to get it right. I think mixers sometimes kind of get in their feelings about revisions. And I never mm-hmm. do because it's not about me. It's, it's not. And, and same thing with producing. Like I, I producers get in their feelings a lot, a lot. It's not about us. Yeah, I could see that. It's not about us. And it, it never has been. And it, it never should be. It should be about properly representing what the artist is trying to say. And whether that's a hit song or not, whether that I feel much better about, I, I'm much prouder of the records that I've done less commercially success, like we're less commercially successful than I am about the records that we fucking nailed it. Like we got the point across. There's a Sammy K record mm-hmm. that I did that like, man, like five people have heard this fucking record, but the five <laughs> who heard it are like, holy fucking shit. Cause we just, we killed it. We pulled the thread all the way out until it was just like, until there was nothing left. Right. And sometimes those records, they develop a cult following as time moves on. I think that Sammy K also is so crazy talented. And like, I think his records, people will eventually catch on to them. I mean, he sounds like, he sounds like Tom Waits. Like he's, and he writes like these like timeless Americana songs that are just like so beautiful. And like, they're like saccharine sweet, but not in like a bubblegum way, like in a way of like, like a peach iced tea on a hot day. (laughs) I like that descriptor. That's good, man. (laughs) Well, cool, dude. This has been a lot of fun. I just want to thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, one last thing about Never Look Back. One of the greatest surprises of that record is how much Mike Carrera vocal there is on you know, it. You know really fought for that was uh, was Tom Tuchilla. Really? That's cool. Mike's manager, yeah. I mean, Mike fought for it too, but like Tom was like, no, we, we, need, Mike, we need Mike on this. Like Mike's got to sing some leads. I mean, Charlie sang a fucking lead on it. I know, and it's so cool. I love his voice. It's super unique, super punk rock. In Infinite, so yeah. cool. He was so in his head about it, and I was like, "Dude, just fucking, it's fine, dude. Just fucking, you got this." Like, did you track those vocals? Vocals were tracked by uh, Dylan McLean at John Studio. Okay. Because um, I I had gotten really busy. Um, I had been so I went from the Goldfinger record into a Knockdown record directly into No Effects. In in between there, I was doing an Ian Abel record and mixing Woolbright's new record. So I was doing, yeah, I think I was doing eight records at the time. So I was like, I was too busy. Unbelievable, man. You're a busy guy. I mean, I got a very hungry nine month old, but yeah. we also like, we but- just became homeowners and like, you know, and we were saving at the time to buy a house. And like, where we I was like, you know, I was just, it's the music industry can be really feast or famine. So mm-hmm. like when you're hot, you just got to stay as hot as you can for as long as you can. Ride that momentum. Yeah. And like, that's like, I think now at this point in my career, like I am a little less like, like I think like I've, I've made an impression enough on the industry that people who are going to know me, know me. And I'm really lucky to not be in a position where people, when people say my name in the context of production, they don't know who I am. Right. Exactly. You've made a name for yourself. You're credible at this point. You've got so many credits under your belt at this point. 
in preparation for this, I looked you up on Google just to get a full discography and you've got an extensive list. I also do like film shit too. So like do like consulting for film for, uh, for music authenticity, which is pretty cool. Like I did this movie called the high note with uh, Tracy Ellis Ross and Dakota Johnson and I taught Dakota Johnson how to use a console. Cool. That's really rad. We played a recording engineer and I was like, sick. Dude, but hey, I'll let you go because uh, I could talk forever about anything. Dude, this has been fun. We'll do this again. Maybe we can do this again and highlight an old classic punk record. Oh my God. I would love that. Okay, cool. Well, let's do Outcome the Walls, dude. Let's do it. Not a bad idea at all. Or Punk and Drublick. That's another good one. Indeed, another classic. Well, thanks again, man. I hope this session today goes very smoothly and well. And yeah, I appreciate your time today. I, I had a blast and, and uh, I hope like there's some cohesive narrative to the, our, our rambling. Absolutely, dude. It was great. Thanks, man. There is one question on here real quick. I just want to make mm-hmm. sure that if, if you don't want me to answer this, it's fine. But if you wanted it. Are there any upcoming projects? Do you want me to speak on any of that shit real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it, man. You mentioned some of them earlier. You mentioned Crooked Teeth and Talker. Yeah, so upcoming stuff for this year. There's actually two NoFX records that are going to be coming out. Uh, one wow. this year and one next year. I just finished mixing Suicide Machine's new record. Um, there's a new We Are The Union record that we're starting this month. We, are, we just finished mixing Knockdown's record and working right now with Crooked Teeth and Talker. And... That's exciting, dude. There's some other stuff to you that I don't know if I could talk about quite yet, but... Yeah, 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 for sure. I appreciate you mentioning all of those projects that you're working on. Two NoFX records, that's incredibly exciting. That's one of my favorite bands of all time. It sounds like you're a fan as well. I just, <laughs> I just like the fact that you're a fan of things in general. Yeah. I feel like sometimes musicians and producers can get a little jaded. I think it's very easy when you're in audio to, like, when you get into your... Like, when you work in music to get into your car and drive home and listen to a podcast or listen to nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's just not my, like, even when I'm done mixing a mix session here, I will normally like invite a friend over, have a coffee and we'll listen to other records, even if I've been I mixing it. all day. Yeah. But we'll talk more shit later. We'll fucking yeah. we'll do another one of these. All right. Sounds good, my man. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a great day. Later. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it. All right. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. I'll talk to you later. Hey.